Okay, let's take our scriptures and let's go to the second psalm, psalm number two. So we're concluding our summer in the psalms. Uh, we are going to study four of them in total, and we're on the second today. Psalm number two. And as you make your way there, we'll read it together, and then we'll pray and ask God for help this morning as we study. Do you remember as we read this section that these are God's words to us? And for our benefit, we need to submit this morning to his word and to his wisdom. These are the words of God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we come to this time again, as we do each and every Lord's Day aware of our need for help from your throne room. We desire your grace to be put on display as we study your word, both in the proclamation and the reception of your word. Father, I ask for humility. May we be informed by the gospel in such a way that as we come to your word, we lay our lives before you as living sacrifices. May we not stand in judgment over your word this morning. May we not evaluate it with critique and with analyzing as to correct it. But may we stand under its judgment. May we willingly and joyfully allow it to critique and analyze us for correction and for change. Father, we're grateful that we don't come to this time without help. We, we come with the helper as we study. He is the one who has given the gifts for proclamation and enables them this morning. He's the one who opens our understanding to your word. Apart from him, we would have nothing but frustration in this endeavor to study and to understand your mind. So we lean upon him. We ask that his work would be evident in us and among us. So that you would receive glory as we're changed and molded and shaped into the likeness of our Savior, your Son, whose gracious work at the cross has made way for us to know you, to be known by you, and to be like you. We praise you for your wisdom, your revelation, and we submit our hearts to you now, asking for grace that all that is done in these few moments in your word would be done to your eternal praise and glory. And we ask for that, knowing that's in keeping with what you designed for this time, what you desire for us, 
So we ask for it in confidence and in faith. In the name of Jesus. Amen. There are certain settings where rebellion is particularly futile. Um, One of them was my home growing up. If rebellion was seen in my home, it only resulted in more authority, right? Rebellion against authority would be um, the opposition to it in the hopes of relieving it, of living without that authority. And in, in our home, any outward expression of rebellion didn't alleviate the authority structure in the home. It only heightened the awareness of that authority structure. And I'm trusting for many of you, that's the same story. I've become fascinated with the prison system in our country, not all in a positive fascination. It is a tragic place to study. But within the prison system, rebellion within the prisons does not result in the removal of authority. You are already incarcerated. You are already locked up. And your rebellion as an incarcerated, locked up individual results in more locking up, longer sentences, time in the hole, in isolation. Seamen are very aware of the negative consequences of rebellion and the feudal nature of rebellion. Mutiny was punished, and even the hint of mutiny is punished with death. You would walk the plank or rebellion on the ship. You don't like the captain. You start to put up a fight against him in hopes that he will relinquish his authority over you and allow you to be the captain. You'll find out quickly that he does not like such an idea and you will be walked out to the end of the infamous plank and be pushed to your your death. The military is no place for rebellion. From the moment of entrance into the military service, there is a, a very clear a very clear hierarchy between those who are in authority and those who are to obey that authority. We're all aware that heads are shaved, that there is a unity in look and appearance and in disregard for those who need to learn to live under the structure of authority. Rebel against that, and the authority doesn't say, you know what, you've made a good decision. We needed to come to you and ask about how many push-ups to do. And so we'll let you decide from here on out how many we do. It doesn't ever happen that way. And you military men can affirm that. Rebellion within the military results in more authority or more aggressive expressions of that authority. So it is in the much grander scale of the human experience. And in Psalm 2, in the second psalm, David provides for us a grid through which we can see that the human rebellion that is prevalent, it's universal, will not result in the relinquishing of authority from the one who rightfully holds sovereign authority. In fact, it will result in a heightened expression of that authority. We've read this psalm. It's familiar to many of you. And for many of you, the words seem to just roll off until we get to verse number 12, where we are most familiar with the words, kiss the sun. This morning, I hope as we dig out a little deeper into the second psalm, we will recognize that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of this psalm. And Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of of the response of heaven to rebellion in humanity. 
So if there's one grand theme or one big idea this morning, it would be this. Jesus Christ will, Jesus Christ will reign forever with many friends, but with no enemies. Jesus Christ will reign forever with many friends, but entirely without opposition. There will be a day, and it is coming, it is as sure as the day we are experiencing now, that Jesus will reign, and He will reign with no opposition remaining. Psalm number 2 declares this to us. Now, just before we dive into the details of this second psalm, let's be sure that we understand a few few. Facts that kind of revolve around this psalm. It is the most quoted psalm in your New Testament. Nowhere in the psalms do we find the kind of familiarity as we do with Psalm number two in the New Testament writers. Um, Paul was very familiar with this psalm and its direct correlation to Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews was is very familiar with with the Old Testament Psalter, and in particular with this psalm as he quotes it several times within his letter to the Hebrews. And John on the Isle of Patmos was very familiar with this second psalm as he brings it to bear in the writing of the final book of our New Testament, the book of Revelation. This is the most quoted messianic psalm, royal psalm, that we have in our Old Testament Psalter. It is a royal psalm. It is directed at King David and his lineage. And ultimately, we've found and we will find today, it is directed at the seed that would come and establish forever the throne of David. That is Jesus Christ. David wrote this psalm. There's no author designated at the beginning of your psalm. But in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25 and 26, we find Luke, who's recording and writing down the record of the apostles and the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts, gives to us under the inspiration of the Spirit that it was in fact David who was used to pen these words. So David is writing, and he's writing this psalm as part of the gateway to the entire book of Psalms. As these psalms were compiled, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, coupled together to be the doorway to the remainder of the Psalter. So often this psalm is connected directly with what we studied two weeks ago, in the first psalm. So those are kind of the, the context, the facts that are revolving around this. And we dive in with the understanding that it is Jesus Christ who is at the center. There are three distinct features that seem to support this idea that he will reign forever without opposition. At some point in the future and for eternity. Three distinct features. They're like spotlights that drive home the reality that Jesus Christ will reign forever with many friends, but with absolutely no opposition to his reign. Just to give you a heads up, here are the three distinct features or spotlights that we see in this second psalm. First, we see the unchanging human rebellion. The unchanging human rebellion in verses 1 through 3. And then we'll combine the second and the third stanza Verses four down through verse four down through verse nine, and we'll see the unstoppable divine sovereignty. So the unchanging human rebellion will be met with the unstoppable divine sovereignty, and we will culminate in verses ten through twelve in the final stanza, and we will see featured there the unfathomable messianic grace. So there is universal human rebellion. There is unstoppable divine sovereignty. 
And there is unfathomable messianic grace extended through this song, this second psalm for our consideration this morning. So let's begin in verses 1 through 3 and let's see briefly the universal human rebellion. We've experienced it. Here the psalmist describes it poetically for the sake of singing and recognition of the current situation. We begin this psalm with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Before we jump into the answer to the question, it's not a question that the psalmist is hoping someone can give him some answers to. This is not even a rhetorical question. This is a question that says, why on earth would they do this? This this question at the beginning of this psalm betrays the disbelief and the the irresponsibility of the nations and the peoples and their kings and their rulers. It's as if the psalmist is saying, why on earth are the nations raging? Why are the people plotting in vain? Why is this taking place? Who in their right mind would involve themselves in this? So it is with that connotation that we begin the study of this universal human rebellion. First, we'll see the rebels. They're described poetically with parallelism. The Hebrew poetry often will have parallels. You can see it as you read, and it will become helpful to you as you study these. The nations and the peoples are parallel. These are two ways of saying the same thing. Why are the nations raging or clamoring? And why are the peoples plotting in vain? That is, plotting in in, in, a, in an attempt to, to stage an attack or rebellion. The parallelism continues and it moves from the nations and the people who make up the nations to the head of those nations or the heads of those nations. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So the rebels who are described here are universal in terminology. All those who are not in a covenant relationship with God. The Gentile peoples. They are all categorized within nations, peoples, kings, and rulers. And they are all plotting and raging and setting themselves against and thinking and taking counsel together. The word that's used interestingly for plotting is the same word that we talked about in Psalm number 1 for meditation. The idea is why are the peoples talking to themselves about how they might rebel? So the rebels are, are, are described here with big, broad, universal terms. And this is no mystery to us. We began our worship this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, reading about our alienation from the covenant promises of God. In the center of our time, Andy read for us from Romans chapter 11. And the masterpiece of theology as we understand how we as Gentiles fit into the promises of God that were given to the nation of Israel, as the seed, the descendants of Abraham. So the rebels here are designating all Gentile peoples, all those outside of the covenant relationship with God. This is universal, and it is an unchanging situation of rebellion. This has not been altered to this day. Now, who are the objects of the rebellion? What is the goal or the aim, what is the focal point Of this rebellion. We find it in the end of verse number 2. These nations. These people. These kings. These rulers. Have all gathered themselves together. Against Yahweh. 
against the covenant-keeping God of Israel and against His anointed. The object of the rebellion of the human experience is none other than God Himself and His anointed one. Thankful for the ESV's translation work here in the capitalization of the word anointed. Because it is evident as we consider the whole of our Bibles that the anointed one is not merely David who was the first of the Davidic covenant, but it is ultimately looking forward to the anointed one, none other than the Messiah. The opposition The rebellion is focused upon Yahweh, the one true God of heaven, and His anointed Messiah. Interestingly, the word anointed is Messiah. And we have derived, it is a a transliteration that we get Messiah. And Messiah, transliterated into Greek, is Christos. So if you break it all down, we have Christ, Messiah, anointed one. It's obvious that this one is not just merely representing a human king. God's presence would not be restricted to the temple. He had planned for his eternal presence to be through the king that would come and sit on the throne of David who would be in his holy hill. And it is that one. And it is the the God who sent the anointed one who received the rebellion of all of humanity. The unchanging Human rebellion covers all of us who are apart from covenant relationship with God by His grace. And the object of our rebellion is God Himself and His promised one. Now, there are many today who in your culture, in your society, your neighbors, your co-workers, your fellow students, your friends from the coffee shop, who may be very rebellious people but who would not claim to be rebels against God. They're angry about something else. They have some other object that they are looking at and saying, that's the focal point of my rebellion. What I really hate is the government. What I really hate is the school structure in which we exist. What I really hate is is the tax system here. What I really hate is Sacramento and its, its work on our behalf. Had to pick a word to use there. Work on our behalf. Right? That's the object of my frustration. That's where my rebellion is, is, is being focused. And what we find in, in Psalm number 2 is that the nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, their, their ultimate rebellion is focused on, on, on one place. It's heaven. Yahweh God of heaven and His sent one, the anointed one that comes from heaven to earth. So we see the rebels, we see the object of their rebellion, and then we see their rebellion verbalized in verse number 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Something we say often, no doubt. You've got this one put up on your wall in your dining room. What exactly is this sentence about? The heartbeat of the rebellion of all people who are not in a covenant relationship with God. The heartbeat of... All rebellion for all people who are not in a covenant relationship with God is a rejection of His Lordship. It is a rejection of His authority. These words are used specifically to to describe the idea of those who are not in a covenant relationship to the sovereign authority of heaven. Their hatred 
for that authority. They view it as bonds and they view it, view it as cords. The common vernacular today would be handcuffs and shackles. The relationship of the unbelieving world, of the unredeemed, unaffected world, those who are apart from the promises of grace and the new life given by the Spirit, those who exist in the universal humanity apart from covenant relationship with God. They rebel against God. And in specifics, they rebel against the authority of God. The nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers. This is nation by nation. All people outside of a covenant relationship with God are marked by this same rebellion. It is the lordship of Yahweh and his anointed king that these rebels so desperately hate and desire to throw off. So rebellion against God has never changed and it will never change. What began with Lucifer in the presence of God was a rebellion against the authority of God and in the place of supremacy of God. What continued in the Garden of Eden in Adam's fall was a rejection of the authority of God and the word of God. A pursuit of being like God or equal with God, which is what the enemy said would take place. And what has been passed down to all of us who are descendants of Adam, all of us apart from God's sovereign grace, reaching into our lives, intersecting in our lives, drawing us into covenant relationship with Him, apart from that work, we are rebels against God and we are rebels, most importantly, against His authority. We hate it. We join our chorus to the plotting and to the raging, and to the gathering council, and setting ourselves against Yahweh and the Anointed One. This is the human condition. This is the universal human experience, and it is the unchanging human rebellion that the psalmist uses as the first of his spotlights, the first feature that will lead us to the end of Jesus Christ reigning supreme with many friends, but with no opposition. National rebellion continues and continues and continues because the people and the kings and the rulers continue to despise God and to hate His authority. Perhaps you've experienced this in your evangelism in your sharing Christ with others, perhaps you've experienced the kickback to the authority of God. I remember when I was working a very special place called Starbucks uh, when I first started seminary training. My coworker there was a was an unbeliever who was vocally unbelieving. She was committed to disbelief. She was a rebel against God. She made no. It, she made it very clear to understand and to appreciate her rebellion we only we only in all of the time together hours and hours and hours together we only got to one truth of the gospel together and it was that god created her and it was at that point that she said i don't want to talk about it that's nonsense why is that nonsense because his creation of you demands his authority over you if he's creator, you're created. If he's the potter, you're the clay. 
And all human, all human beings exist in this description of the unchanging human rebellion. Hating Yahweh and His anointed. Desiring to shed His authority and His lordship. And to reign supreme in our own existence. So with that first feature, we move then to the second of the three features this morning in the second psalm, the unstoppable divine sovereignty. And it's here that we see the contrast. I mean, if we see the human rebellion and we think, well, that that might be a convincing argument. Notice what the psalmist does in the second part and the third part of this song. Verse four says, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the testimony of his anointed one, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the unstoppable divine sovereignty. And it is the contrast to the unchanging human rebellion of verses 1 through 3. First, we see the sovereign scorn of God is depicted as sitting in heaven. God is a spirit. He doesn't sit in a literal sense. But to help us understand and to paint a picture that that makes sense to our human existence in our minds. The psalmist says that God sits in heaven. And he laughs. I did a little word study on laughter in the Bible this week as I was preparing for our time of study this morning. And interestingly enough, the usage of laughs here is very similar to many times in our Bibles when laughter is spoken of. The laughter of God here is a laughter of scorn, of mockery, of disbelief. It's the same laughter that describes the the picture we see when Goliath comes out against David. And he scorns David. He laughs at David. Why? Because he's a giant with massive strength and massive weapons. And he's got little people that go around and hold his weapons for him. That's their job. He's so big and so mighty and so mean. And there's this little boy who's a shepherd. No armor, just a sling. And he laughs. You you know this idea. This is what God does towards those who are in rebellion against him. It's hilarious. You're going to plot against me? You're going to rage against me? God laughs and he holds these individuals in derision. Turn a few psalms over to the 37th psalm and let's see this same concept depicted in the 37th psalm. Psalm 37 and verse number 12. Another psalm of David. The same theme is found. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Here the object of the rebellion and the object of the hatred are those who are declared righteous, those who are identified as God's people. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. Why? Because he sees that his day is coming. You all are familiar with the chuckle. Your day is coming. The smirk on the face. 
This is identifying God, the creator of the universe, the holy one of heaven, the one who's created all peoples. And as the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers set themselves against his authority, the natural response, the only appropriate response is laughter from God as he scorns them, he mocks them. for Their idea of pursuing their own sovereignty. His is an unstoppable sovereignty. Stephen Charnock would say to be God And to be sovereign are inseparable ideas. God is sovereign. Not because he acts sovereignly. He is inherently sovereign. He is unstoppably sovereign. He rules. Sovereignty is just a big fancy word for ruling, for authority. He has an ultimate sovereignty. And he scorns those. He holds them in derision, in mockery. Those who would perceive that they are a match for their creator. Secondly, we see this sovereign communication. He will speak. He will reveal. And when he speaks to them in his anger, in his wrath, they will be terrified. The psalmist says God will terrify the wicked in his fury. There are few in your Bible who have seen God, who were not in a covenant relationship with God, and even those who were known by God, remembering back to our study of Matthew in the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, the disciples fall down. They are terrified of what they're seeing, but they're in fellowship with Christ. They are known by God. They are loved by Christ. There are some. There are those kings in our Old Testament who set themselves against God, who who set their agenda in mockery of God's sovereignty. Those who drank from his vessels. There are those even within the nation of Israel who disregarded his authority, touching the Ark of the Covenant. And all of them experienced the terror of God's holy wrath. The opposition of the rebels is laughable in the presence of the unstoppable divine sovereignty. All human Rebels, that is all humans apart from God's grace, are aware of the authority of God through the created order. Romans chapter 1 says that all of us know He exists. We know Him. And in our conscience, He has written His law. So that we are both aware of His presence and we are bound by His leadership. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. This is unstoppable divine sovereignty. Notice in verse number six, something that doesn't jump off the page at us. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's a very personal sense to this, but the word I in verse number six is in an emphatic place. In other words, God is saying here, as for me, the one in heaven, the one who created all things, I and only I Establish my king. I set up leadership. I send my anointed one. I'm the sovereign one of heaven. Me and and me only. There's an emphatic nature in which God alone establishes his king, his anointed one, his authority on earth. Finally, in reference to the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, we see the sovereign appointment 
Here's the decree of God, the unchanging declaration of the sovereignty of heaven. Yahweh said to me, and the author of Hebrews speaks directly to Christ, to which angel did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In reference to the supremacy of Christ, we find this declaration goes on to say, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. And dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The Messiah of God is the Son of God. Sent forth from God. Who will receive the nations as his heritage. As his footstool, you'll remember. Who will receive the ends of the earth as his possession. This is what the enemy tempted Jesus with. He took him to a high place and he said, you can have all of this. Well, Jesus was promised all of that. What was the temptation? You can have it now. If you'll simply abort the Father's plan and worship me, I'll give it to you now. This is the promise and has always been the promise for the Son, the ultimate King on the throne of David, on the holy hill of Zion. This is the sovereign appointment This sovereign anointed one will break the enemies and dash them to pieces. These are violent terms. These are gory terms. These are promises in the appointment of God's unstoppable sovereignty. So the unchanging human rebellion is no different in one sense than the unstoppable sovereign will of heaven. It has never changed. God has always accomplished what he designs to accomplish. He will never be thwarted. Psalm 115 verses 2 and 3 say, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There is no wicked individual who can stand in the way of God's sovereign plans. Jesus Christ is the culmination, the fullness of God's plans for redemption as He gathers a people to Himself for the glory of His name and the praise of His grace. And that Son, that Anointed One, will reign forever with many friends. But brothers and sisters, there will be no enemies left when He reigns. God is utterly sovereign. His authority knows no limits. His power knows no breaking point. And this is the early contrast of this second psalm. As they sang this psalm together, they were reminded of the rebellion of the nations, of the universal unchanging condition of humanity, and they were reminded of the unstoppable sovereignty of God's reign. Which leads us to the third spotlight and leads us to, the, I believe, the, the treasure of the second psalm. Because we would not expect these next words. We find in verse number 10, now, therefore. Wait, there's application? There's something to be known or to be done? There's something that that is to come from this? I believe the third spotlight that we see this morning in this final paragraph is the unfathomable messianic grace. Based upon what we've just seen in the first two sections of the second psalm, there is little hope for a therefore, right? I mean, it seems like the therefore should be run. 
Be afraid. Cry. Scream. Hide under rocks. That's not what we find in verses 10 through 12. Notice the gracious counsel given. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. That's the kings and the rulers who are plotting, who are raging, who are setting themselves against, who are receiving counsel in opposition to God. Be wise and be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. The rebels can be the servants of Yahweh God. Rejoice with trembling. The rebels can be the rejoicing ones. This is the counsel given. Kiss the son. Bow before him. Give allegiance to the anointed one. The Messiah of God. The alternative reminder, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. George Zemeck, a father in the faith and a, a friend on my bookshelf from the Master's Seminary, says this about this section. Repentance is the only antidote for rebellion. But it is available. This is the gracious offer extended to the rebels. Be wise, be warned, serve and rejoice and bow and kiss the sun. Cease from your plotting and your raging. Cease from your standing together and taking counsel together against God. Repent. This is only grace. This is only unmerited kindness from the unstoppable sovereign one of heaven to the rebels who are against his name. To us. This is inexplicable. God would offer grace to the rebels, to the enemies of his name. Yes, through the son. And notice the gracious promise. There is the gracious counsel given and notice the gracious promise. The last words of this psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's refuge to be found from the holy terror of God against his rebels. That is, there is refuge to be found for the rebels from the holy terror of God. Many of us have grown up with the vernacular of, I got saved on such and such a day. I was saved. God saved me on this time or in this year. Saved from what? Saved from who? If you're here this morning, as so many of you are, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. What we find described in this, in this inexplicable grace, this unfathomable messianic grace, is that God has saved us from Himself. He crushed His own Son to rescue us from Him. It's His terror, it's His wrath that can be avoided. Turn to service and joy. And there is blessing for all who find refuge in him. Rebels can be refugees. And all who are refugees in Christ are the blessed ones. What does it mean to be a refugee? 
in Christ. It means there is forever peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 says that the great exchange of our justification, sin to Christ, righteousness to us, has created peace. It's signed the treaty with God. Those who are finding refuge in Him find peace in Christ. They find forgiveness. The blotting away of the debt, Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15. They find imputed righteousness, foreign righteousness, not theirs. Not something they earned, just something credited to their account as Abraham was credited with righteousness because he believed. And there is eternal life. Because the raging king, the one who will crush and break the wicked rebels, gave his life at the cross. He was resurrected on the third day and conquered death. So, Put on the refugee jersey and say, I am with Christ. I recognize the unfathomable messianic grace that is ours. I'm a nation. I'm a peoples. I'm plotting and raging. And the covenant God of heaven in his kindness to us for no other reason than to put his glory on display. Has rescued us. Has brought us into the refuge of his son. He's rescued us from his own wrath. That we might be heirs of eternal riches in Christ Jesus. The answer to the universal rebellion of the nations is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And the promise for all who are in the gospel, who have received grace from God, is a promise of blessing. Are you finding refuge in Christ today? Did you come this week having found refuge in Christ? Will you face this new week with refuge from Christ? Dads, there is blessing for you. There is grace available for you as you shepherd and lead your children if you'll find refuge in Christ. Husbands, There is grace and blessing available to you in Christ to be loving, sacrificial leaders of your wives in your homes. Wives, there is grace to be humble, submissive helpers within your role in your home. There is energy and strength in the refuge of Christ available to you, moms. Singles, there is contentment and peace and joy to be found in Christ, the refuge, its It's it's in Christ that we find those blessings. It's in the gospel realities. Seniors, there is purpose, there is service, there is love, there is tireless growth in Christ. To be found in the refuge of Christ, the blessings flow through the anointed one whom we have bowed before and kissed in homage and allegiance. This is unfathomable messianic grace. This will never get old, brothers and sisters. We will sing about this for eternity. This will be our song through the ages. That He loved us when we were yet sinners and enemies of His cause. So unbelievers this morning, those of you who gathered, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, who are still described in the first segment of the unchanging human rebellion. The only application is for you to repent 
to turn away from, from, from your plotting and your raging against God, to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your own righteousness, to turn away from your own wisdom, and to make a 180 degree shift, and to look to Christ in faith. Repent and believe. And grace is extended for you to serve and to have joy and to receive blessing in the refuge, the protection of Christ. John 14.6 leaves you with no questions. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father. No one receives a gracious relationship with the Father. No one is in covenant with the Father, but through Him. Will you turn from your own way? Kiss the Son. Bow your heart. Acknowledge your desperate need for a substitute. God's holiness must be met. You could not ever earn it and your sin constantly pushes you further away from it. You need someone else. And that someone is Jesus. Who has lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. Who has died at the cross as a substitute for sinners who believe. And who has been raised again to new life. If you will turn from your way and believe that way, you will receive grace from heaven for eternity. Believers, brothers and sisters, Grace Church family. I have been praying that we would see the Savior freshly from Psalm 2. That we would be gripped all over again with the human condition. Because if we don't grasp that that's us in verses 1 through 3. Then we will never appreciate that that is also us in verses 10 through 12. And we will certainly not worship the one described in verses 4 through 9. Appropriately. The gospel is not for the beginning. Of your spiritual walk or your walk of faith. In Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ continues to inform us day in and day out, scenario in and scenario out, trial in, trial out, blessing in, blessing out. Believers, be reminded, worship anew, find refuge in your Savior, the Son, the Anointed One. Jesus Christ will come and reign forever with many friends. And he will crush all rebels and opposition. Guaranteed. He'll do this in spite of or overcoming the universal human rebellion. Because of his unstoppable divine sovereignty. And in his unfathomable messianic grace. He will do it with a myriad from every tribe, tongue and nation. Of people that shout glory and worthiness to the Lamb. Slain so that they might be the peoples of God. This is our song. Psalm number two.